Hey team, you're about to experience my interview with Jason Hine. He is the principal B2B visionary at Bloomreach. Bloomreach is a personalization and search and merch platform. And as they have intended to roll out additional B2B functionality, Jason is helping them to do that, to tailor the platform specifically for B2B e-commerce merchants. Jason has been working in the e-commerce space for over 20 years with a massive chunk of that being specifically in the B2B e-commerce space. I think you're gonna learn a lot, enjoy. Welcome to B2B Commerce Corner. Commerce Corner is a sub-series of the e-commerce edge podcast discussing all things B2B commerce through the lens of agencies, consultants, merchants, and more. Enjoy. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of The Pod. It is my pleasure to welcome Jason Hine from Bloomreach to the podcast. Welcome, Jason. And by the way, fantastic name. I always enjoy having a conversation with my fellow Jasons. There are quite a few of us, and we all tend to be the same age. So uh, like, we always end up having quite a bit in common. It's funny you mention that because when I was going through elementary school and into middle school, there was never a class that I took that didn't have at least one other Jason in it. There were usually two or three other Jasons in it. And so I got very used to being called by my last name for my entire early school years, because otherwise, if the teacher said Jason, we'd all turn our heads at the same time. So we all got, we all became known by our last names. Yep. I had, when I was growing up, I went to, there were 75 kids in my class. I lived in a small town. And so about 50% of them were boys. And so you figure there's 30%, 30, 35-ish. Four of us were named Jason. So yeah, it was, it was like 10% of my, of the boys in my class were all had the same wow. name. And you went by your surname as well? You went by your last name? We all had different nicknames based on where do nicknames come from? I don't even yeah. remember. I used to play football on the playground after lunch every day. And I remember like they, I, they called me salt shaker because, wow. because at the time, so this is living in Minnesota and at the time, if I'm remembering right, I could be completely misremembering this, but there was a wide receiver by the name of Leo Lewis. And people said that I played like him, like, you know, in other words, not so memorable where anybody remembers you, but like decent enough that like you were good enough to get a nickname. So that's, that was my, that was one small section of my friends called me that, but that it didn't last long and I, I'm not advocating for it at all, but it, to solve that problem. Yes. You had to be, we had to be creative. And so what you're saying is you were in no danger of having a professional football career. Absolutely not. Certainly not as a player. Definitely not even as a towel boy. I, I didn't, I didn't have the patience. And besides why, like many of us who I'm sure have appeared on your podcast, I grew up playing industrial distribution in my garage. That's what we all aspire to do. Isn't that why I'm here? My childhood dreams of working in industrial distribution. Apparently because that leads us nicely and segues nicely into what you find yourself being involved in today, which is B2B, which is manufacturing, wholesale distribution. And I guess really that's where is a probably great place to start. You're known as the, and I didn't even know this was a job title, but apparently it is the principal B2B visionary of Bloomreach. But if we go before we get into Bloomreach and, and all that, mm -hmm. how, how did you come to be in the space? Because if I look back across your history, I would say that you have a streak of entrepreneurship because you founded multiple companies. You've been a partner in multiple companies. You've led 
multiple companies, but you also have this deep understanding of B2B that goes back well over a decade. So you've got this deep understanding, it seems, of tech, of entrepreneurship, of B2B, brand, marketing. It feels like a very eclectic mix that brought you to where you are today as a luminary in the B2B commerce space. Yeah, I would say that I have, I am... I would not necessarily describe my knowledge as super deep on all of these because that's, you go deeper, you go wide. I have a, how would I describe this? Broad. So, broad so, understanding. Yeah. <laughs> like I have, I am a Swiss army knife, right? Like I have tools that can do a lot of different things, but you wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily pick any of those tools and call myself like a solutions architect or I'm not that level. But what I do with my, so I'll, I started off in an, out of college working for an industrial distributor. I worked for McMaster Car. They had a very unique approach to how they merchandised product, right? It's all about, here's the features of these products, here's what they do, and here's why you should care. And they were very consistent about keeping that information available to all their customers. They didn't even, they would not show brand of products across most of what they sold. It was very, it's a very different, uh, and I find, fascinating way of merchandising that is super customer focused, right? So I learned, that's where I learned about industrial products. I worked there for 12 years. I did merchandising across a bunch of different categories, everything from fastening hand tools to raw materials to, to, to cutting tools and abrasives and welding and soldering, precision measuring. I learned a little bit about a lot of these different, very technical products. And then I did completely the opposite. So I was at McMaster Car when they were first transitioning over into digital, like moving from this very, they were one of that first wave of e-commerce innovators who had, they had the content from the print catalog. And what they were able to do quickly is transition that onto digital. Oh, we can make PDFs pages and we can put those PDF pages of our print catalog on the internet. And wow, you know what we could do? We could take the part numbers from some of those PDFs and turn them into H and turn them into links. And you could order things on the internet. Oh my God. We're living in the future. And that was a great place to get started. Get that grounding in the product itself. Get the grounding in what it means to merchandise and differentiate these different kinds of things. And then I, I got hired to move out here to Seattle. And I was on the team that started up what has since become Amazon Business. And so that was very much like a startup mentality. <clears throat> now, granted, it was a much more well-funded a startup <laughs> a day one a day yeah. one startup that's not really a day I, one startup yeah exactly a day one startup 10 years in 12 years in roughly um and and that was a fascinating exercise because we really started off at amazon trying to create something very non-amazonian trying to create something that was very curated like we were very selective about which brands we would bring on board right because we had to establish credibility if we went to market at Amazon, at that point, it was Amazon Supply. If we went into market with a bunch of no-name brands that nobody had ever heard of, we wouldn't get that customer trust. So it was very important to us to establish that, no, we're serious. We're going to do this. And we're doing it because we knew that there was a generate. This was late, late 2000s, early 20 aughts, or early 20 teens when... Like millennials were just starting to become a thing, right? They were just entering into the workforce. And the thing that I always had in my mind is the millennials at the time had been able to order everything they'd ever needed on Amazon since they were seven. 
So now that they're starting to go to work, why is that going to change? It won't. They're going to want to buy things online. And that is certainly something I think we can pull that thread as we get a little bit farther into this, because I think it's only accelerated as we've gotten into the Gen Z era. And it's the expectations that need to be managed that people need to be thinking about. But that's so at Amazon. So whereas at McMaster Car, I learned about curation and deep, thoughtful, mindful merchandising and the high value of product data and product data quality. Then we move to Amazon, where it's all about scale, speed, and and more scale. Like it, it's get that the Amazon flywheel moving more and more selection, more and more stuff, or more, more regions, more and more, more, more logistics. Exactly, and they've done. So I was there. I was at Amazon for about five years, and <clears throat> did some vendor management. Did some. I ran our catalog content team for a little while. We added. I, th- I may be responsible for more attributes being added to the Amazon catalog than any other human. I think we, wow. we added about 1,500 to 2,000 new attributes in order to, surprisingly enough, in the mid-2000s, Amazon did not have an attribute for flow rate at 20 feet of head. Funny that. Why would, would, Who why would have thought? That? Exactly. So we led that. and But it was like, and then I, after about five years, like a lot of people, I was like, okay, I've had my Amazon experience. I've had my second grad school, learned a lot, worked with some amazingly intelligent people. And now I'm going to, I'm going to, I decided to move on and started, I went, actually went to work with a bunch of old friends from McMaster Car back in consulting. And I focused really heavily on product data modeling, SKU build, attribution selection. How do we solve the core problem in B2B that we still have, where so much of the data about product is this legacy ERP, not fit for human consumption, attributes and values that doesn't meet what I call the four C's of product content, right? It's incomplete. It's not complete. It's not consistent. It's not correct. And it's not clear. What do we need to do? How do we as a digital company, as a B2B company, wrap our hands around this problem so that we can actually set something apart and create something in our experience that we can differentiate our experience vis-a-vis anybody else. So I did that for about five, boy, six years, five, six years. Worked for a couple of different boutique little companies because that was not something that the big consultants were doing specifically for B2B, mostly because they didn't really understand the product. They didn't know the difference between a ball bearing and a ball peen hammer. That was all, everything was just a skew or a widget. And so I was really hammering home the value of product data and product content and why it's so important and why it can be a sustainable, differentiable asset for B2B companies. And I joined, and that's when Bloomreach approached me because they were taking it from this very different approach of maybe there's more to it than just the product data. Why don't we also look at, because you think about the start of a transaction, right? When the user comes, goes to your site, they go to search and they search for something and they're searching for it using a term that they know, that they understand, that they expect you to understand. And the search fails. So they go, oh, okay. All right. Maybe they call it this. Maybe instead of screw machine drill, maybe they call it a stub drill. And okay. So they try that. Oh, nothing. Okay. All right. Maybe they call it a short drill. Okay. Well, oh, there we go. Now we got 25,000 results. Ah, okay, great. They find something, they vet it, they add it to their cart and they buy it. And most of the time what ends up happening is you track that sale. Oh, this, somebody viewed this product, they added it to their cart and they bought it. But there is information in there about what other terms they were trying to use to discover. 
before they found the one that got them to that detail page. Why don't we store that? That behavior that user is indicating by what they're typing in, what they're looking at, what they're clicking on, what other things they're clicking on, what they're clicking back on, like that whole realm of buyer behavior is actually very informative. And when you track it and aggregate and roll it up across the entirety of your customer base and the entire and all the different, that gives you a really powerful second asset that when you bring that together with the product data can help to drive differentiation. And so like when we talk about me being the principal visionary for B2B, I act as an internal consultant here. So I spend time with the sales org, talking to customers, talking to clients. I spend time with the product org, talking about features and functionality and use cases and why these sorts of things are important. I spend time with our marketing team, our product marketing team, working on story and narratives and like, how do we want to talk about this, the benefit of this particular feature vis-a-vis B2B use cases in particular. And that's, it's a really fun role. I strongly suggest that anybody in this space seek out a principal visionary job posting because it's a great way to meet a lot of smart people and do a lot of fun. Wow. So much to unpick there. And it's, I feel like we taken a, took an amazing walk down memory lane. And I think if we walk back to the McMaster car experience for those in the industry that maybe don't know, haven't heard, I would be very surprised anybody that works in the B2B space hasn't heard of McMaster car. Like they're, they're like Granger. They're, they mm-hmm. are one of the big beasts of industrial product distribution and, it's and sailing. Yeah, it, 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 yeah. Yeah, it, exactly. Most people will have heard of that. And I feel like that is an amazing place to cut your teeth on the world of B2B. Because as you say, most people either start out with that e-commerce experience or they start out with B2B experience. And then they, they, all of those that ultimately end up in B2B e-commerce meet somewhere in the middle, right? They have to learn both aspects of it. And I feel like you had an amazing baptism by fire at McMaster Car, understanding, okay, cool, we've got potentially hundreds of thousands or millions of SKUs that we are trying to differentiate when there might be two or three other distributors of the same SKU. We're trying to differentiate by bringing a unique set of product attributes to the table that people will only be able to access if they go through us. And so we're adding value to those products that those manufacturers are making. And we're adding value by enriching the products with data that the buyers need. They absolutely require it to make a buying decision. And if we don't do that, our competitor will and we'll lose. And what I've found is that oftentimes in the B2B space, you don't necessarily have to be the cheapest because the reality is if you're offering a better service, if you actually have the products in stock, you're not just doing drop shipping. If you provide, if you have better field sales reps that know the industry better, if you have better product data and a smoother buying experience, if you offer a superior credit experience, there's all sorts of ways to differentiate yourself in the B2B world that is does not exist. Those differentiators do not exist in the B2C, D2C world because of the way the B2C products are sold and in, in much more self-service sort of way. Whereas in the B2B world, it usually is a much more of a guided experience. And as a result of that, there are so many more levers you can pull to differentiate yourself. But what's interesting is you then moved into the heart of what many consider to be the cutting edge of D2C or B2C e-commerce over at Amazon. But because you were in the business unit, which ultimately effectively is the, for those that don't know, 
the business unit is the B2B side of Amazon. So it's businesses selling to businesses at scale. And, you know, that I think that's not a differentiated experience on the front end of Amazon. It's not like they got two different Amazon websites and one's B2B and one's B2C, but they've so tightly interwoven experiences for the scale B2B buyer now that they really are starting to compete with the likes of Fair and some of the other B2B only marketplaces that are out there in the market because of the scale at which they're able to operate at. And I think that's the differentiator for Amazon. And what I find super interesting is about six months ago, and you may have seen the same, at the end of COVID, Amazon realized, particularly in Europe, that they were severely underserving the B2B market. And all the way from number of suppliers, all the way to number of SKUs, all the way to logistics capabilities, they recognized all of that. And they saw that the B2B demand was exploding during, especially on the tail end of COVID when people got programmed to buy online. And so they specifically said, they released a press release that said, we are on the hunt for many more B2B merchants to come onto our platform so that we don't have these massive category gaps like we did before. So even Amazon themselves, I think, recognize the power of B2B commerce. Yeah, that was part of when I was, when we were just starting out, like 2009, 2010, like at the very beginning of free Amazon business, like the thought was like, it was a very much a learning environment. What do we need to know about these kinds of products? What do we need to know about these kinds of buyers? They knew that the buyers, right? So the individuals that were doing the buying on behalf of the customer, which in B2B, the customer is a business, remember? They knew that those folks, to my earlier point, they knew that those folks were already buying on Amazon. Like as humans, they had already been trained on how to search for and find product on Amazon. And it's funny because what we would, what we found in those first few years in general, right? Q4 is the end of Q4 and the holiday season in B2B is where business dies, right? Nobody's, nobody's shopping for this stuff. When I was at McMaster Car, I was literally like my, my, I was in the merchandising department, probably, I don't know, like 85 people in the department. And they all basically took the last three weeks of the month of December off. And it was like me and the two other new kids. And we were like, we don't have enough vacation. But, and so I, when my first year at Amazon, I was like, ah, okay. Because everybody was like all wound up. Oh, we got holiday. Q4 is coming. Black Friday is coming. We got to prepare. And I was like, nothing's going to happen with us. Nobody needs Enmill as holiday gifts. And, but what we found is there are certain products from some of our suppliers, B2B suppliers that had consumer crossover. So we sold Norton products from Saint-Cobain. And so we had loaded their selection primarily for grinding wheels and points and sanding belts and like all these industrial abrasives. It turns out they also offered a couple of sharpening stones, like water stones for sharpening chisels and knives. Q4 hit, and we could not keep those things in stock. We, because people kept buying them to give to family members because of people course. recognize, oh, it's Norton. So this is like high quality stuff. Oh, we're going to, we're going to, we were stocked out on Waterstones that first year. We got cleaned out. And so we were like, wow, that's crazy. But then what happened? And so we saw this huge spike in traffic, huge spike in sales. And then January rolled around 
and the traffic didn't go away. The, tra the sales didn't go away. So what was happening is that people were coming to the Amazon site search because they were searching for like Waterstones and they found these products that we sold. And that was their introduction. Oh, Amazon sells Norton? What? Who Amazon? would have thought? Amazon has 3M? Oh. You can buy a lathe back. on Amazon? What the hell? Yeah. Oh, yeah. We were selling. I get. I am not kidding. We were selling genie lifts, like the cherry pickers. Wow. On Amazon supply back in 2010, 2011, like $8,000. Like we were selling $5,000 water chillers. We were selling crow. This was the thing that really surprised us is how quickly people were perfectly willing to drop four to five figures to buy equipment from Amazon. And that showed me how important that degree of trust was because people trusted Amazon when Amazon started to sell these products. Like it happened much faster than I ever thought it would. And we saw that every year for the five years that I was there, the business would be coming along just fine. Q4, we saw this big spike because of the traffic. People would see, oh, because we would have added all these other brands like in the year prior. And suddenly you're like, oh, Sanvik Cormont? What? Uh, really? Okay. And then it, it was a slow process because certain product lines and certain brands obviously have a more of a consumer crossover than others, but it's about getting people to see that brand was there. And that I think was a big part of getting that traffic, that flywheel moving for Amazon business. And of course, then when they like right around the time that I left, that was when they opened and they transformed from Amazon supply into Amazon business, opened it to the third-party marketplace. And then they were just off and running because they've figured out now that we can actually, I find it interesting how much they've invested in the sort of behind the scenes, like reporting and metrics for the buyers to monitor spend. It's almost like they're trying to become like a very lightweight cloud-based procurement system. Yes. specifically for, and it's, specific, and it's really focused up front early on for the small to mid-size market, but they also were very aggressive about pursuing contracts with very large institutional, like educational, like research universities and multi-location manufacturers because they were trying to establish that credibility. And now they've got it. And I think what's been interesting over the last few years, and this is going to be a point of view, but I think they're shooting themselves in the foot because they, Amazon feels like they are less interested in actually selling the product and more interested in leveraging their traffic and monetizing their traffic, whether it's through ad spend, paid third promotions, sales, et third party sales. Yeah. That, and I get it, right? If I had that kind of traffic, but the problem is that it really makes it, it goes against everything we were trying to do when I was first there where I, we were trying to set these very high standards for product data quality. Oh, you want to load product into Endmill? You need to have these attributes. And I would, we actually built our own team of offshore, because Amazon has its own, like their own RBS was yeah. what they called it, the retail business support over in, it was in India at the time. I don't know where it is now. It's probably all over. But we actually had to build our own within industrial and scientific because the RBS team had no idea what any of these products did. Wow. So they didn't even know what attributes needed to be added. They had no idea, nor how many attributes needed to be added. So we actually had to, and they just didn't have the capacity to add that type of work at the time. I think they've, there's been a lot of work done since then to bridge that gap. But this is 
I think, a really important point, Jason, which is people in B2B need expertise to make decisions. Like the big difference between B2B and B2C is that in B2C, in consumer goods, we know what a lot of this stuff does. We know what a coffee cup does. We know what a wireless speaker does. We know what a smoke detector does. This, these are not things that you and I have to have explained to us in great detail. And whether it's creating content to sell these products, whether it's loading these products, whether it's recognizing that, yeah, this is a good product we should add to our catalog or not, that is, we can almost take that by default in the consumer goods space. But buyers in B2B, yeah, some of them are absolutely industry experts in these things. Like the engineers who are working for Boeing, yeah, you bet they know fasteners. <laughs> you bet they know adhesives. But sometimes you get something brand new and you're like, oh, man, I've never worked. Like I, I think of, I, so I live in Seattle. Obviously, there's a lot of tier one suppliers into Boeing in the area who make components and parts. And for them, the transition to the 787 was a big deal because they'd been working in aluminum and Inconel and titanium alloys. They had to start working in carbon fiber, which has a very different machining set of machining properties than what they've ever had to work. So they were suddenly reaching out to their supplier salespeople. They were like, okay, where do I go? How do, what is delamination? And it's a very different need. They, this is why salespeople have been so important in B2B for so long, right? Because, because the buyers don't always know everything. And as opposed to consumer goods, where the things that determine what we want are oftentimes trends, what our friends like, best-selling. The thing that I need to solve my specific problem is much more determined by what are the features? How do they work? How do they solve this exact problem that I'm having today? And creating a digital experience to solve that problem in B2B, where if I'm, a, I'm an electrical contractor and I need to buy a bunch of light switches, well, all right, am I, a, am I doing a single-family home renovation? I just need to buy a couple of light switches? Or am I doing a new wing of a hospital where like I need these switches to be washed down compliant and meet some sort of like hospital regulation? Like it's a completely different thing depending on the project that I'm working. I can't just search for light switches. I need to give you some context. And that's where this concept of how do we create a digital experience that makes me look like I know what I'm doing as a distributor. That when you use that fancy term to do that search, you search for screw machine drill bits, I'm getting you, like the results that you see look like what I as a buyer expect to see. That's about earning trust. And hey, if you can sort them in the order that matches the application I have that day, man, now, oh, now you know my business. Okay, that's great. Let's do more of that with them. What else do they sell? And that's when things start to but does that also come back to, so there's two, two pieces of this that I'd like to unpick a little bit further and double click on. So does that, to me, that feels, and I've always started, whenever I've ever started consulting with a new B2B brand that maybe wants to do e-commerce for the first time, or they want to significantly step up their game. The first thing I look at when I go in and start consulting with them is I ask them for 25 sample products and all of the product data that they have around those products to just show it to me and show me what that looks like. And Maybe it comes from the ERP or maybe it comes from a PIM system or maybe it comes from wherever. Show me what that looks like just so that I have an understanding of that and show me some single variant products, show me some multivariant products, show me what your, your, do you even know what the difference between structured and unstructured product date is? Great. You do. Fantastic. Show me what you have. 
And then I ask them to do the same thing with customer data. Show me a sample, a cross-section of your customer data. Show me the details that you have. Show me the attributes you have of that customer. Show me how you manage your price lists. So do you have a price list per customer? Do you have tiers? Do you have, how do you do things? Do you do negotiated prices on everything? And when they show me that data, I usually, with 15 minutes of reviewing this data, I can identify immediately where all their challenges are around digital channels. It just exposes so much. And it sounds to me like what you're saying is, we learned early on that unless we speak the language of the buyers for those B2B products, we'll never be able to sell to them. So not only do we have to speak their language from a merchandising perspective and marketing perspective, but then when they land in a category, say, for example, let's say the category is light switches, and there's 10,000 SKUs in that category, without really good structured product data and attributes, they're never going to be able to filter Rappi down to find what they're actually looking for. And so therefore, they're probably going to leave the site. If they can't, if they can't rapidly find with the correct certifications, with the correct specifications, maybe a downloadable PDF spec sheet or tech pack, they, B2B buyers need very different things to be able to complete their buying journey than B2C, D2C customers do. And I think that this is something that, not that we can't learn from the B2C, D2C space, I think we absolutely can. And there's a lot of design patterns and UX, UI, system architectures and everything that we can steal from the B2C, D2C space because it's so much more mature than the B2B e-commerce space. But in terms of the actual data itself, it is quite a different set of data. And did you guys find that was the, that was actually your differentiator? It was, it, 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 you, did you realize, look, this is never going to take off in earnest until we put the investment into creating a data set that is a genuine asset, not only to us, but to our B2B buyers. And then second, so that's the first question. And then two, did you find that businesses that were then on retailing some of those B2B products that they were buying. So they were a B2B customer, but then they were putting it in their retail store or they were putting it on their own websites or they were, they were, maybe they were, a, I don't know, maybe they were an engineering supply company in their town. And so they would buy a bunch of engineering supplies off of Amazon and then they would put them on their shelves, put their 30% margin or whatever it is and sell them that way. Or were, or in most instances where you were the B2B customers that were buying on Amazon, were they consuming those products themselves internally? So first of all, what was the importance of product data to what was the primary customer cohort that you were going after? And when I was at Amazon specifically? Yes. yes. Yeah. So the, so Keeping in mind that this is all coming from that period of 2009 to about 2014 when I was there. So we're, that we're, so this is at the time. And I think things have changed quite a bit since then. Our targeted customers at that time were very much companies that were going to be using these products. We, our goal was not to create necessarily a great experience for, whole, for retailers. We weren't trying to act as a wholesaler. We were trying to act as an MRO like we wanted to, we were competing with the Grangers, the McMaster cars, but more importantly, we were competing with the local distributor down the street. Somebody who, because we had the whole like, yeah, we had all this inventory, but we can get it to you via Prime very quickly. That ability to ship product, get it to you right away. Certainly what we found that we certainly struggled with early on out of the gate, because we could only work. What we found initially is we could only work with the data that our suppliers could give us. And because at that time, late 2000s, early 2010s, most manufacturers did not have their product data in a very nimble format. It wasn't, it was certainly was something, was, they struggled just to export it, much less to export it in a format that matched 
the templates that we needed to create in order to load these products. Like today, it's better. I think more like one of the things I think the industry has done really well over the last 10 years or so is they've started to pay attention to PIMS, right? They are understanding that it's not just the products that we have that adds value. It's our ability to help our distributors, to help our channel partners create great digital experiences. That's what sets it. That's why people will pick us because I can create a, I can export from my PIM, from my, my, my distributor portal. I can create, here's the load sheet for you, Greenwood Supply. Here's the load sheet for you, Hein Industrial. Like what, whatever you need, boom, done. That adds value to those distributors. That didn't really exist though back then. We just had to take just, and it was basically this, we were ingesting pure ERP data, which as it was the equivalent of dumping crude oil directly into the fuel tank of my Ferrari. Yes. It's not going to work particularly well. So we had to build our, that's, we had to build our own process to clean up and refine this. And we were actually loading things directly into the Amazon catalog, which was very different from the way that most of the other hardline categories operated. Yeah, that was really, we wanted to sell to businesses and, but we, what made it, and so we didn't really see people practicing arbitrage on, on in Amazon supply at the time, mostly because we were still very early. We were, I remember when we first sold a billion dollars when we first hit the billion dollar a year run rate on revenue. And that was well, they're up to like, I think $35 billion run right now probably more than that. That's been a while since they last released that, but I don't know. I think it's at this point, I think it's accidental. Look, sometimes the happy accidents lead us to very good places in our career. And if we fast forward since then, this is over a decade later now, and you're at Bloomreach and Bloomreach is a, now I've never worked uh, just, just in all transparency. I've never used Bloomreach before, but I've used systems and technologies similar to Bloomreach before. It's a search and merchandising platform, but as far as near as I can tell, this platform is unique in the sense that it is targeted at those B2B merchants that need this capability that is quite unique versus the equivalence in the D2C, B2C space. You're in the B2C, D2C space, you've got your Nostos, you've got your Search Springs, you've got, you've got 20 very popular, very well-known name brand search and merch technology platforms out there, particular audience and all the rest. But in the B2B space, that is a totally different kettle of fish. And I'll give you a, a prime example is we were working with a very well-known, I've got a client right now that's just about ready to go live with their new e-commerce platform and they do B2C and D2C. And they were implementing a search and merch platform as part of this implementation. And this search and merch platform is targeted very much at the retail space, not the B2B space. And we made it very clear to them upfront that, hey, look, this is, this is a hybrid website. We're not gonna have two separate storefronts for B2B2C. So therefore, it needs to support these three or four B2B specific functions. Can you do it? Yes, we can. It turns out when we got into UAT, it didn't do those things. And one of those things was customer specific pricing because that search and merch platform obviously understands price as an attribute of product, not price as an attribute of customer. And in the B2B world, price is an attribute of the customer. And so we had to go through an additional sort of last minute rescoping of that piece of functionality to get supplementary data plumbed and integrated into their platform so that they could then feed it back to us in a JSON stream so that when a customer was authenticated and logged into the website as a B2B customer, trade customer, 
that they saw all the pricing that they were supposed to see both on a cat on a, a category page on a search results page on on all the places through the website where this technology was surfacing basically product tiles we need to make sure they were seeing their customer specific price list and it sounds so simple like when you put it that way it sounds like why didn't it do that or why didn't it do that natively without some additional level of attribution of the products but that's because that platform is like 98% of its functionality is targeted at the B2C, D2C world. It's right. not targeted at the B2B world. And so I guess what I'm, my question that falls off the back of this is, is that partly what your responsibility is at Bloomreach is to help them understand those nuances, help them understand those differences between the B2C, D2C world so that they can build a product that is uniquely fit for purpose in the B2B space. Exactly. If part of what we have to do is exactly the same thing that our customers have to do, right? We have to earn the trust of our customers, just like they have to earn the trust of their customers. And so for us to be able to go in and say, yeah, oh, hey, customer-specific pricing, is that a thing? Okay, yeah, you know what? We've got that. In fact, we're doing it with some of the largest global distributors in the space. Like six of the top 30 industrial distributors in North America are Bloomreach customers because the system works. In fact, it goes beyond just pricing, right? Not every customer has access to the same catalog. Just because I have a million SKUs doesn't mean that every one of my customers is entitled to those SKUs. I need to manage that as well so we can do that. And being and so that's a part of it. Being able to handle catalogs that are in the millions and to understand that there are different terms. Think about the mapping of synonyms and what a problem that was like 10 years ago. Remember, we were like working in Indeca or Solar or Elasticsearch. You had all the null search report that we would have to work every week, right? Up oh, here's a bunch of terms people are using. We don't know what they are. Figure out what they are. Like that's something that an algorithm should do. That's something that the behavior of your buyers can do that for you. So we talk about the fact that most B2B companies are not blessed with a surfeit of merchandising employees. They may not even have any merchandising employees. They don't have a plethora of IT resources who are super eager to sit down and implement changes to merchandising ranking rules based on somebody's idea of what patterns are doing. That. So what the Bloomreach core philosophy is like, hey, you've got smart people in your organization right now. Lot, think about how many people are working inside sales these days, right? These are teams that have been built for decades, built to pick up a phone, talk to a customer who's having a challenge. Hey, I can't figure out which one of these things is the right thing for me. Can you help? Can you help me find something? I need, a, I need an activator that's compatible with this, with this epoxy adhesive. Okay, yeah, hey, look, I can help you with that. Our, the problem is that those phone calls aren't coming like they used to. But these teams are staffed based on legacy call levels. All right, what are we going to do with these people? We've got folks that really understand our product and they understand our customers. And they're like, they get it. But if there's only so many phone calls coming in because everybody is trying to move to the web, what do we do with these people? For, there are some technologies out there that like can offer merchandising and search capabilities, but they are very... Like they're almost like a pseudo DIY. Like if building it yourself in Elastic or building yourself on solar is build it yourself, that takes a lot of dev resources. And there are 
some technologies out there that have, they're very capable, but they're almost pseudo DIY. They're do it yourself. They're do it mostly yourself or do it largely yourself. They're dilly as opposed to DIY. And that can be a problem because you can't take these people, these inside salespeople and just plunk them down in front of a SaaS solution on a landing page and say, all right, here, go to market. Here, just do some boosting and burying. Set up some A-B tests. Here, let's have a system where these people can come in, sit down, get a list of, hey, we looked at your business last week. Here's things in your category that we think you could either make more revenue, make that revenue more profitable, or improve your customer satisfaction, retention rate, RPV, like the sort of metrics that you and I are very familiar with, but a lot of B2B companies have never heard of these things. That's part of, I think, the Bloomreach differentiation is being able, the user interface is so simple. Even I can do it. And, and, and that, like having gone through and seeing like how easy it is to like boo boost and burying and to actually, and not to create synonyms, right? Like the technology already knows that. We've been selling B2B products off and on for, with some of the industry leaders for over a dozen years. Like the baseline is set. We recognize not just what these search phrases say, but what they mean. We understand that a quarter inch 20 is a size for fasteners. We understand that 316SS is a material for metal bars. It's not just keyword one, keyword two, keyword three. So being able to take that semantic understanding and use that to power merchandising capabilities for regular folks, business users, to take their next step in their career is a really compelling argument because you can see the work that these people do immediately hit your bottom line so quickly because of the established machine learning that's been built over the last dozen years of working with B2B customers. Listen, I love the fact that you uniquely have this focus on B2B from a search and merch perspective because there are such distinct differences in the customer journey, right? That's really what we're talking about. We're talking, when we think about B2B, there's a few other key differences in relation to search and merchandising that I'd love to unpick a little bit more with you. So in the B2C, D2C world, for example, the really good search and merch platforms, they will look at things like what products were purchased based on a search or from a category. They will look at products that were abandoned in the cart. They will look Mm -hmm. at categories that people visited. They will look at what was added to a wish list, for example, so that they can start to get an understanding and start to link all that together with the behavioral data of behavioral as people traverse the platform to personalize their experience. And so if they know, for example, that customer X buys, it's a fashion brand and they buy something that's got the red attribute 85% of the time, a pretty good idea that they like products that are red. And so we can surface red products to them more often than non-red products, so long as the product has that attribute. Now, in the B2B world, it's a different story, right? Similar concepts, but a different story. We don't have wish lists, but we have corporate shopping lists. So we have certain things that get bought organization-wide on a recurring basis. We come in, we log in, we order the same things over and over again at scale. And so the touch points across that digital journey are similar, but just different enough that you really need to have a search and merchandising platform that truly understands the B2B buying experience and what those buyers need to click the purchase button and check out. And is that 
So do you guys really solely target B2B or is that just a significant portion of your business and you also service the B2C, D2C space? Yeah, we certainly service both. The things that, so there was a number that we would quote a few years ago. I don't know how it's changed since then, but we basically at one point said 25% of all commerce experience traffic between the US and the UK touched a company that was a Bloomreach customer. So we wow. were, yeah. So like we have definitely, certainly a, a legacy history in B2C. Like some of the largest uh, B2C brands are, are Bloomreach customers. But it's because we did work with these very large customers that we started to develop some of these capabilities around custom pricing and custom catalogs. And, the, uh, and what we realized is that there is one of the other nuances about B2B is in de it determining exactly which product is the right one for me today can be different from determining which was the right product for me three weeks ago. As a consumer, a lot of my purchases are influenced by preferences. What is my favorite color? What is my favorite sports team? Where am I? I have these sort of patterns that hold fairly steady over time. And a lot of the behavior collection, search and merchandising tools for specifically for consumers leverage that. They say, oh, they bought this thing four years ago. Ergo, we are going to assume that preference still holds true. Jason Hine bought three years ago, bought a Justin Jefferson rookie year Vikings jersey. And so we are going to this year recommend a, another Vikings themed products because we think he is still a fan of the Minnesota Viking. And sadly, that is true. I am a, I do, I am not a masochist except when it comes to professional sports. But in B2B, the nuance is that sometimes the things that make companies want to buy certain products are not personal preferences. They're not trends. They're not, oh, my competitor bought this. It's really, what is the problem I'm trying to solve right now? So there is this delicate balance between, yes, being mindful of and aware of the long-term historical patterns, but also understanding that there is some recency, there is some value in recency. And because when I, if I'm a contractor and I switch from that multi-unit residential job to that hospital job, like the faster that we can see and adapt to that, the better experience we're going to create for that customer. The more we're going to make it look like we know what you're doing. We understand your business. It's really important for distributors to be able to do that. And that's something that, you know, that we can help to bring to the table. There, there's just a, so as I guess, you know, to answer your question, a lot of the features that we've built for B2B, they got their start because we were working with really big B2C companies. But mm. as we've brought in more B2B leaders, like there are other capabilities and other functionalities around things like the ability to dynamically group similar products together to say like, all right, in this category, we're going to group all of the products who have the same values for head type, drive style, material and finish under fasteners. And boom, we're going to magically create product families of cap screws or castle nuts or washers without having you just using the data that we have without having to go through the process of manually create those sorts of features and functions 
and being able to merchandise those groups now. So, hey, I, instead of boosting and burying individual SKUs, I can boost and bury an entire family in my results. Like, again, that's all coming out of requirements and requests that these industry leaders have shared with us. And, and we love that kind of work. And I'm guessing that there's some additional complexity. And look, I don't want to go too deep in this because this is quite technical in nature. But I think this is important because this episode really is targeted at those B2B merchants out there who need to better understand which technology in the market really is tailored for them versus mm -hmm. technology they're going to need to adapt. They're going to need to. There's some PIMs out there, for example, that are fantastically designed to work great in a very complex B2B environment and some that are really heavily tailored and skewed towards the B2C, D2C environment. And sure. I think it's important for anybody who's out there in the B2B space as a merchant, they need to go into any of these discussions with vendors, partners, consultants, whatever. They need to go in wi eyes wide open that a lot of the technology out there really isn't for them. It's not been designed from the ground up for them. Mm -hmm. But when we think about B2B, there's a couple of other things that specifically impact search and merch. Things like you said, product hiding, category hiding, MOQ management, quantity of block block unit purchase requirements. So in other words, you've got to buy this in units increments, of yeah. you know, increments, in, increments yeah. of 20s. It's, it's got an outer and an inner, and you can only buy it as an outer kind of thing. And these are the types of streams of data. In addition to the unique pricing, these are streams of data that also need to be surfaced in the search and merch platform because you need to be able to show and or not expose the products that they shouldn't see to them in the search results or in categorization or even in the menuing, if, especially if it's dynamic menuing that's coming through the merchandising platform. You need to make sure they're not seeing categories they're not supposed to see. Then when they do the incremental buying, that those incremental rules need to be surfaced through your product tiles so that when they add it to the cart, it's correct. They, their MOQs need to be respected. There's a lot to this that goes way beyond anything that's required in the B2C, D2C world. Yeah, exactly. And that is something that in terms of a, an implementation, certainly that was something we would dig into during kind of scoping and discovery is like, what kind of whether it's a regulatory constraint, right? Like, are you selling medical equipment? And some of your products are class one medical devices. So those, we, you can only, we have to make sure only customers of yours who are on file and registered with you as a licensed recipient of class one medical devices can see these products to begin with or can buy these products to begin with. You might want to show them that you have them, but maybe you don't want to actually have a buy button be active, which they're not visible. There, there are all, yeah, that, cause that's to your point. Like there, think about, it's not a, even the logistics sometimes that create nuance. It's the regulatory environment. Yeah. Like we've compliance. got customers, we've got customers who sell alcohol. Yeah. Break compliance around that is insane, especially when you're thinking interstate, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Cause different states have different regulations. So some of their customers, I can do a search for margarita in Virginia and I can show tequila as part of my results, but in New Jersey, maybe I can't because you can't sell hard liquor online. There, there's a lot there and having a tool, maybe even this isn't something that you need on day one, right? Maybe this is something that you're trying to, you're trying to inch into this. Maybe you want to start with certain product categories that are the ones that are driving your business so that you can like optimize that, drive more revenue, drive more profitability because that's how you're going to get your budget to then expand in the future and add on to other categories, add, move into other geos. Like maybe your U.S. business is going to drive it. And all right, we're going to start with that, grow that business, prove our case that yes, building a 
truly differentiated, highly B2B focused experience that actually gets your customers to a detail page, one, and but two, gives them the confidence that thing that you just pointed them at is the thing that will solve their problem. That's how, that's how you take the grunt, boring work off of your salespeople. Like all the onesie, twosie orders of, oh, hey, I just, I need another one of those things I got last week. Can you send me one? Really? Is that the thing you want your salespeople doing? Do you want your salespeople taking that call? No. You want your salespeople doing what salespeople do really well. You want them building relationships. You want them forging connections, especially these days where those connections and relationships can be very tenuous and very short term. You can't rely on the fact that your salesperson is buddy with the guy down at the, the purchasing manager of the Ford plant and they've gone to each other's kids' weddings, grandkids' baptisms. Like that, I hate to break it to you. It does say something about our society in general, but those kinds of relationships are almost impossible to expect between your salespeople and your customers. And so the forging process, the early stage relationship building, I'm proving to you that I can help you. I can add that value. That is even more important now because your salespeople have to do more and more of that because there's always new people coming in. So that means your salespeople need time. Your salespeople need time to be in front of these people building those relationships. Anything that you can do to take the work that doesn't add value, the onesie twosie orders, the, hey, I need a copy of an invoice, the, hey, can you send me a proof of delivery on this thing? Or, hey, I need a quote. You know, let's hey, just request that directly through the website and then it electronically gets responded to and approved. And then when I go to checkout, I get that price. Exactly. That electronic commerce is not a zero sum game where every order that comes online is a loss for your salespeople. Frankly, it shouldn't be anyway, because your salespeople own the accounts. So any order that you get from that account should get credited to that salesperson, whether it's coming online or coming through the phone. Like the moment you do that, you will solve so many problems. It's not even percent. You, then nothing will turn your salespeople into bigger evangelists for your e-commerce site than making sure that they get, that those numbers count towards their commission. Just, well, I would go yeah. even one step further, and I've seen brands succeed by giving them an extra incentive for orders that come through the website. When it's, for example, when it's new and it's the first sure. time they've done digital yeah, commerce, yeah, yeah. they'll say, hey, look, we're going to give you an extra point on every order because we know you're going to have to do some extra effort to onboard them into the e-commerce platform, hold their hand, maybe for the first two, three, four orders, get them comfortable with buying online. Yeah. We know you're going to have to do some extra work there. So for mm -hmm. every order that comes through this new digital channel, we're going to cut you an extra, we're going to give you an extra point, or we're going to give you an extra two yeah. points on those sales. Yeah. And that's going to, that, that exactly. really incentivizes those salespeople to help onboard customers into those platforms. And it's, and more importantly, it just as importantly, it keeps your salespeople from being the blocker. It keeps your salespeople from saying, Hey, yeah, go ahead and use the website. But when you're ready to place your order, just give me a call, give it to me instead. Or flip me an email, attach your CSV exactly. of your order, and I'll deal Just, with it for yeah, you. Yeah, I'll deal with it for you. It's their spirits, they're trying to do the right thing. They're trying, in their mind, they're adding value. But the thing is, for the most part, the buyers at those companies don't want to do that. Like, they want to just put it in online. Especially so for like, replenishment ordering. Exactly. Exactly. Wait, you want me to put something in an email? Who wants to do that anymore? Who wants to, I don't do that in my to... personal life. Why would I do that in my work life? Exactly. There's 37 different places that file downloads get put in my hard drive. I don't even know which documents or downloads folder of the three or four I have options for are going to be the place where any given file is going to go. Like it's going to take me more time to email this to you than it is for me to just drop it into a website that can actually work. Wow. Wow. This has been 
such an enlightening conversation. I guess it helps to validate so much of what I'm seeing today in the market as a consultant. It just reinforces and revalidates, I guess, the need really for those of us that have this background, that have this empathy, that have this experience working in the B2B space. It is really, it is up to us to try to bring up that next generation of digital expert, that next generation of consultant, that next generation of solution architect, that next generation of e-commerce manager or digital lead within a brand. It is our job to help them understand and get up to speed on the nuances of the difference between B2C and B2B. And it's really up to us to send the ladder back down so that I'm a firm believer that the ri a rising tide floats all boats. And I, I've just seen this too many really? times to, to, I just, I believe that to be the case. And I think that the more that we can help these B2B brands do a better job in creating a seamless buying experience for their customers, the more trusting B2B customers will be of those experiences and the faster that transition will take place away from every single deal needing to be done through a field sales rep that comes and visits me on a call cycle every two weeks. Because that's really, and you spoke a little bit about tiering of customers. There's no way, and I had, I had Dean McElwee from Stanley Black and Decker on the, on, on the pod recently. And what he said, when they go into a new market, so let's say they're going into India and used, he used India as a prime example, right? There is no mm -hmm. way, even if they wanted to have a field sales rep go and see every potential B2B customer in the country, it would literally be impossible. They couldn't, they couldn't hire enough people to do right. it. It would, be, it would require a force of hundreds of thousands of people. So what they did is they looked at it and they said, okay, we can have assigned reps for the largest of the customers because they have really complex needs. Mm -hmm. But for the local mom and pop shops that buy our products and put them on the shelf and sell them to, into their local town, we just need to reach out to them digitally. We need to onboard them digitally. We need to provide them all the collateral digitally. We need to get them into a credit account digitally. We need to allow them to search digitally. We need to, basically every form of communication with this type of customer mm -hmm. needs to originate, begin and end digitally. And then if they need some right. additional help, maybe they jump onto B2B live chat where we have a AE, an account executive, an internal account executive that is assigned to a hundred of these rats and mice accounts. And they yeah. can deal with those on a more one-to-one -one basis, but still using digital channels because they're not going to get in their car and they're not going to drive out in the middle of nowhere to go and visit these B2B customers. They can't do it. They do not have the manpower to achieve that. And so I think this is another important piece is that no, one size isn't going to fit all, right? So if a brand has huge customers, mid-tier customers, and very small customers, maybe for that biggest end of town, it's all EDI. And that's usually the case. Those customers, nine times out of 10, those POs are going to be generated in their ERP. You're never even going to know it comes in. It comes into your ERP and you're off to the races. Yep. The mid-tier guys, though, that want to self-serve and they need a fantastic digital experience, that's where you can really come to the fore there and even for the small guys. Now, there's also this other piece in the middle, which is probably more, more upper enterprise, but below the EDI guys is punch outs, right? And so that's, mm -hmm. that's kind of midway piece where they need a punch out experience where the procurement system needs to talk to your system, but it's still human led as an experience. Mm -hmm. But I think that that fat middle, the smaller end of town, that is where e-commerce, not only from a customer acquisition perspective, is becoming really critically important, but also really giving them all the same self-service tools that they would have as if they were speaking to, a, to a, a field sales rep or an account executive. And I think to me, that feels like the direction our industry is headed. And I'm seeing more and more B2B brands, which historically have always had a gated experience. Now they're allowing customers who aren't yet customers to come to the website, 
to see the catalog. Okay, maybe they can't see prices or they see the highest price available or something like that. Mm-hmm. They yeah, can at least see the catalog. They can actually create their account for the very first time. Maybe they don't get credit for the first time, but they can pay via business credit card for their first purchase. Mm-hmm. And then an AE reaches out to them and says, hey, Bob, Jane, whatever. Hey, we saw you place a purchase through our website. Awesome. How did you find out about us? Would you like to look about trading terms? And, and they can then open a dialogue mm-hmm. based on that first acquisition through the traditional acquisition of digital channels. And then they can, and the benefits that these B2B brands are seeing is they're seeing the long tail organic reach of their catalog. Because usually these B2B catalogs are massive compared to yep. B2C catalogs. They're getting so much representation in the search engines organically that that is actually securing customers in some respects faster than a field sales rep going to every potential customer around town and saying, here's my card, can we have a chat? Yep. Uh, this is a whole different buying game now that the younger generation are becoming those B2B buyers, they're the category managers. They're the, yeah. they're the buying supervisors. And they do not want to have to place an order through an, an account executive to even get shipped a product. They don't want to do that. So I look, I really respect what you guys are doing to try to bring that B2C experience to B2B buyers and customers. It's a big body of work. I know how hard it is because it's so complex, but kudos to you for bringing your natural leadership capability in the B2B space to Bloomreach. Clearly, they saw that in you. Clearly, they said, hey, look, we have gaps in our understanding of this business. We need to bring someone in that gets it, and he needs to help us get it. And, uh, and look, I think that a lot of vendors, you know, let's talk just very briefly because we're running out of time together, and I really appreciate you taking so much time with me today. But yeah. let's just talk very briefly about your recommendations. I'm going to go a different direction than I thought I was going to go with this. But there are a lot of SaaS platforms, a lot of SaaS commerce enablement platforms out there that have never thought about the B2B space. It doesn't even cross their mind. For those platform vendors, what would be your recommendation as a place to start? Because they might not all be able to afford or find someone like you. But how do they start to better understand the needs of B2B buyers and B2B Mm. merchants? So it's a great question. I do want to double click on your earlier point, though. Because I think there's a way of thinking about the whole, this process that customers have gone through to get that meaty middle. It's how easy are you making it for those customers to prove themselves to you? If you're salespeople, you only want to devote to your proven customers, the ones that are driving your business. E-commerce provides a way of, in a very stratified, structured way, letting those small to mid-sized customers who usually With salespeople, you would tell them to ignore because the odds aren't great that they're going to become anything worthwhile. E-commerce becomes how you let them prove that they have the capacity to become a meaningful customer to you because they will set themselves up. They will create their own terms. They will create, like, they will do all of the work. And if they can do all that, great. You qualify them. You you assign them a salesperson. But that's all work that none of your people have had to do. To your other point, where do you go to get expertise in this space? I would say that there are, it's the thought leaders, right? There are not very many of us. We were talking about this a little earlier. There's, I think there's 12 of us. We all know each other and we all end up hanging out and chatting together at the various events. And I think that the guys at Master B2B are doing a lot of really good work around just getting people to think differently. I've certainly collaborated with them quite a bit. I think that Ian Heller and Jonathan Bine at DSG are doing a lot. Distribution Strategy Group, they've been really making a push to just shake the tree and get distributors thinking differently. 
and they definitely come from a place of expertise. I definitely love following the work that Tom Gale and his team at Modern Distribution Management do. They do a pretty nice job of staying on top of not just e-commerce, but also just the space generally. And the DC360 guys do a pretty good job too. They, they came up with this Envision B2B concept that they're trying to compete with the B2B online, the WBR group, which, and hey, more events where people are talking about this stuff where people can hear more opinions from more people are always good. And certainly just follow these people even on LinkedIn, right? Just, hey, I'm not picky about who I let follow me. I, I may not accept a connection if I don't really know you or if you're trying to sell me something, but I am generally pretty open to, if you've got a question or two, I'm happy to, I, I want people in this space to be effective. I, I don't do this because of the, for the, for all the riches right? Nobody goes into industrial distribution and e-commerce because I want to retire early. Like I do it because the people in this industry are some of the most interesting freaking people I've ever worked with. They're super smart. They work hard. They want to do the right thing for their customers. And the pinch point for a lot of them right now is they're just not sure because the market and the methods are changing and the customers are changing so quickly. How do we keep up? So the important thing is to just keep learning. Go to the conference listen to the speakers, read the books, talk, connect with people, talk to them, ask them questions in their webinars. That's how you start, like the whole question about AI, right? Like how many questions have you had people asking you about what's going to happen with generative AI? Is generative AI going to completely make site search obsolete? Nobody really knows the answer, but I don't think it is. I think that there are certain, the problem of getting customers, if customers can't find it, they can't buy it. And if they don't trust it, they won't buy it. That's the important thing for distributors to keep in mind is how do we create a discovery experience on our site that is both effective in terms of getting people to a product, but also making them believe that this product is the right one. If you can do that, well, congratulations, my friend. You're halfway home, at least, maybe more. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Listen, Jason, this has been such an enjoyable chat. We're now at the place of our conversation where I get to do the very pleasurable honor of flipping the script, handing the microphone over to you, letting you ask me one question, any question you like, can be personal, can be professional. So Jason Hine from Bloomreach, what is your question for me today? I am, I like in these questions, I like to talk to people who are talking to customers. What are you hearing from, like when people come to you for a consultation. And they say, Jason, I'm trying to get my feet under me. What are they, what is keeping them up at night? Is it their ability to get their existing customers to buy online? Is it trying to get more customers? Is it trying to avoid disruption? What are you hearing as the thing that people are most concerned about, most worried about in, in your conversations with clients? Very good question. All of the above, but I think the thing that I'm most often approached about in the first instance, now it may not end there, but the first type of questions I'm usually getting are I B2B brands that have never done e-commerce before at all. Like they've just, they've never done it. And they go, we don't even know where to start to identify our requirements, let alone document them in a way that an agency can put a proposal against. 
we really need help. We don't even know where to start. We don't even know if our data is ready for e-commerce. We, we don't know. We literally have no idea where to begin. We know we got to do this. We have customers asking for it. We know there's competitive pressures in the market from competitors that are already offering e-commerce. We know that we have to become more efficient in our sales ops. We know we got to do this, but we don't even know where to begin to do it. That's one cohort. Then there's another cohort that maybe has an older e-commerce platform that they've, you know, has been sitting in a server room for 10 years and it's just been whirring away in the background and nobody really knows how it got there. Nobody really knows how to run it. No, it, it doesn't really get yeah. used by customers. And they go, we know we need to really step up our game, but we got burnt maybe before. In many cases, they've been burnt by technologies that promised the earth for them as a B2B merchant and it didn't measure up. And they go, hey, we spent a hundred grand or 200 grand a couple of years ago on this and it went nowhere. And as a result of that, we got no adoption. As a result of that, we got no ROI. And as a result of that, we feel really petrified of doing this again and getting the same result. We need to, we need someone like you to look a peek around the corners for us and help maximize the chance that A, we have project success, but B, that we have commercial success off the backside of this. So we need, we need you to help us de-risk this project because we cannot afford as a brand to stuff it up again. We can't. Yeah. I believe somebody once said, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice. I won't get fooled again. Yeah. Correct. Uh, Correct. That's, uh, yeah, it's, it is, it is, it is a challenge because I think so much of the, especially the early technologies that were out there were just repurposed, recycled point solutions from B2C. And I think this is also, it's interesting you mentioned this because I think that also contributes a lot to what I see sometimes in these problems, in these projects, is the IT department that is very nervous. And I get it, right? Like IT in the early phases is the one that some business manager decides to implement some solution and they're like, yep, we're going to do it. I'm going to buy the license. I'm going to implement it. They throw it at IT to implement and IT is like, whoa, what, where did this, what? Okay. So they're like, they're taking these hits yeah. from these crazy business people, all of whom read some article and they read, oh yeah, this is the one thing that's going to solve all our problems to implement it. So of course, at this point, IT, it's oftentimes stands for information trauma, not information technology. Like they've been hurt by these projects. And so they, become, their first question is like, no. We, we do not need that. We will build something. Or I will hire developers to build something because nothing out there can be trusted. And unfortunately, that mentality seems to be like resurging again. This interest in, oh, we're going we're gonna to develop our own PIM. We're going to develop our own platform. We're going to hang it off the side of our ERP or what yeah, exactly. we'll, do, we'll build we'll a custom customize our ERP. Our, yeah. yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I'm like, oh, you sweet summer child. I get it. I get you've been hurt, haven't you? And and that's and and I do feel for them because they are a product of their experience, they're a product of their background, they're a product of what's happened to them. But the issue is that a lot of these technologies have been around long enough where to expect that you're going to go out and hire some developers and that you're going to build something that is going to be on par with anything that any of the commerce tools, big commerce Vtex, like Vtex, like are you real, real, Spriker? Are you really? You're going to build something like that? That took them a decade, in most instance, decade plus to build. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Great. Okay. Let's say that a miracle occurs and you find some brilliant young developer 
who I worked with a guy when I was at Amazon who, in his free time, rewrote the platform for Amazon and like improved efficiency by 85%. He got a shoe from Jeff. Good for him. He's brilliant. Let's say you can get that guy. Okay. Congratulations. You think that work isn't going to get noticed? You think that Amazon and Google and Apple aren't going to come and pay? Like, this is the problem. Software developers fundamentally are not evangelists. They are fungible commodities. And the thought that you're going to build a team that is so, going to capable of building something so differentiated and that those folks aren't going to get snapped up is, I think it's optimistic. One is thing. one nice way to put it? Naive is Isn't potentially it? another way to put it? And here's the thing. Ultimately, a, a lot of times, what cre helps you create that digital experience is not the software, right? It's how your people use the software. It's the sort of thoughtfulness and decision-making. It's what data that software has available to it to make these decisions. It's the analytics part of it that you put in front of a human and there, or even that you're able to run through AI and spit things out of the other side. That's where the rubber meets the road. That's where the nitrous gets pumped into the cylinders. So you can end up spending a dozen years and hundreds of millions of dollars to develop something that doesn't really set you apart. And that, that's risky. So do these distributors also try? <laughs> yeah. Do you also, do you contract out with steel manufacturers to build your own racking or do you buy from Interlake? Do you engineer, like you get a bunch of kids together and do an all night hackathon to build your own forklift or do you go to Heister? Like the same things that drive why you buy equipment from these vendors still apply to your tech stack. Managing the integrations is where, is, that's where the magic is. So just do that. And also use the tools that you have. That is one thing I have seen sometimes, even just with some Bloomreach clients, is they'll buy Bloomreach, but then they don't actually implement all the features that are available to them. Or even they may implement them, but then they don't actually use them. And I'm like, it's not a magic wand. It, it's a tool. I can give you a scalpel, but that doesn't mean you instantly know how to perform brain surgery. Like you, you need to like actually practice using the tool and try different things and experiment. And like the companies that we've seen that are starting to pull themselves away are the ones that are, yes, going through the awkward teen years of really learning and reading the documentation and learning the products and trying things and working with the services organization to make sure when you sign a contract with one of these software providers that you're using everything that's available to you. Because otherwise you're just leaving money on the table. And a lot of times, let's be fair. I'm not saying you guys would ever do this. I'm saying I have seen that oftentimes vendors will downplay the internal resources that will be required to maximize what? the use of that technology. And what? that's a dirty little secret of our industry. No, it is. Honestly, that's one of the things that I was talking earlier about the fact that, yeah, you can actually have regular people run Bloomreach. You don't need to go out and hire five or six more developers to handle all of the or a data scientist or an analytics right. specialist and guru. You just need people that can dig into the platform, become and skilled the product. and skill the platform, understand your catalog, and then can make incremental improvements over time. I, like even when I was, I was back when I was still an e-commerce manager working for brands, you know, one of my tasks every single week on a Friday was to do site search optimization. That was one of my tasks. It was on my task list. And I would always spend a couple of hours on a Friday yep 
going through the searches with no results, going through all of the top brands, going through all of the specific search terms that weren't catalog related, so they needed to be redirected to an info page uh, or be yep. re redirected to a blog article or a video or doing all the promotions within categories for products that were on special and put the business rules in place around brand promotions and all that sort of stuff. And, and I'm not, I'm a reasonably smart guy, but I don't think I'm, I'm not PhD genius level, but just because you do it, you create a process around what you need to do. And if you're consistent with it, you will see improved results over time, but you need exactly. to commit to it to a long enough period of time to get the results because a lot of people are really impatient. And it's that level of impatience, I think, that really hurts brands. And I like to tell B2B brands in particular, this is a forever journey. Sure, there's some big milestones along the way, and maybe there's this big bang project to get you up and running on a new e-commerce platform or whatever, but this is something you are going to have to resource appropriately forever. This is not right. a fire and forget channel. That's not the way this works. And yep. I try to set them up for success by setting the right expectations from day dot, I try to explain to them, I try to use terminology they would use internally. It's not like you hire some field sales reps and then you just let them go ham. You put them through your training process, you upskill them, you get them up to speed on your catalog. You, they usually will have a sales manager that will help to guide them and train them and teach them in the ways of the organization. But after you do that initial training, it's not like you stop. Like you continually right. mentor them. You continually monitor them. You continually mm -hmm. train them. You send them away to offsites. You send them to training conferences for sales professionals. You, you continue to pour resources into the sales right. organization. And you're proud of it. You're, and you, 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 you put that up on a pedestal and you say, absolutely, we care about our customers, which is why we're doing this. Yep. And you should feel the same pride in the efforts you put into digital. Yep. I've always said B2B e-commerce is a program, not a project. It's not going to have a beginning, a middle, and an end. There's a beginning and then just a forever after because there's always more. There's always more revenue you can find. There's always more margin points that you can extract. There's always more RPV. There's always more lines per order that are possible for you to get if you are using these tools correctly. And so the more time and experience that your people have using these tools and becoming virtuosos at understanding all of the different keys and features and functionalities, the more that they're able to push the rote, boring grunt work to an algorithm and start thinking about the business more strategically to take their perspective on the digital business, not from down here in the skew by skew mapping of terms, but up here looking at, hey, here's a category that's not working. Here's a query that's not working. Here's a category where our profitability isn't where we need it to be. That's where people's jobs get interesting. And that's where people build careers. And that's what these distribution companies, it doesn't matter if you're a distributor, it doesn't matter if you're a manufacturer. If you're trying to succeed in digital, you have to take advantage of the perspective that AI, machine learning, can, an automation can give your people so that they can just do their jobs. better. What gives them superpowers? And that's what I love. Yeah, I love that. Jason, I have so enjoyed our conversation together. Where do people find you? It's Jason Hine, H-E-I-N. I'll put a link to your LinkedIn profile in the show notes. Mm -hmm. Do you prefer that people go through Bloomreach? And I'll also put the link to Bloomreach in the show notes. Mm -hmm. Or would you prefer that people reach out to you on LinkedIn? Where do people find you? Yeah, LinkedIn is a really easy way to, to keep in touch with not only because I post there, maybe I'm like a once a week 
poster. I'm not an everyday. I will not be one of those LinkedIn people in your feed. Sorry, but usually in advance, because I am one. Oh, oh, no, that's fine. But as long as what you say is interesting, and that's always my goal, is I'm always trying to bring in something that's a little bit different of a perspective. Like, how do I make this, how do I make B2B e-commerce kind of more doggy piggy bunny? Like, how do I simplify how about, how about we? How do we make it more sexy? There we go. Does it need to be more sexy? I think that could, it's, for you and me. It's pretty sexy. It's pretty sexy, but it's like, we have to help the folks that are making decisions, the leadership folks, understand why that it is sexy and that they should also think it's sexy. That's oftentimes the hardest thing that I find, especially when talking to those middle, like the senior manager, like director of e-commerce, the guy who's fantastic. Oh, hey, here, Sheila, go launch, go launch e-commerce. Go on. Where do I report to? I don't know. Sales, marketing, wherever. We'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. Like those are the folks that need help. They need help crafting a story. They need help providing a business case. And that's what I, that's what I'm trying to do in the content that I create on LinkedIn is to just give people talking points. And I like interacting with people. I'm, I, this may not come as a surprise given our conversations, but I am somewhat of an extrovert. Oh, just a little. Yeah. A little bit, but definitely come and, and check us out on Bloomreach. See what we've got there. You may be surprised as to some of the features and functionality, especially we've got some stuff coming down the road here pretty soon that I am personally really excited about, but I'd be willing to talk to you about it as it is. Absolutely love it. Jason, can't wait to get you back on the podcast again. Thank you so much for sharing from that deep pull of wisdom, experience, and knowledge. And clearly sometimes B2B makes you pull your hair out. And (laughs) more often than not, for some of us, (laughs) it's been such a joy. I I can't wait to speak to you again. You have a fantastic rest of your day. Thank you so much, Jason. Thank you, Jason. Had a great time. Look forward to coming back. Are you a B2B or D2C e-commerce merchant? Then head over to greenwoodconsulting.net to learn how we can help you scale your business.